We're going to start in uh, Luke, the uh, chapter 3, verse 21. And it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And he was the son of somebody, and it goes on about 15 verses of sons of people who are other sons of people. And so we're going to skip down to uh, verse 38, uh, where it says, uh, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's God's word. Morning, everybody. Yeah, well played, Phil. I told him he could skip some of those names. Um, so we got the beginning and the end of the genealogy. Morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good to be with you all. Uh, if we haven't met yet, I'm Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here at New City Church. And uh, we're really glad to have you with us today on this um, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Uh, we're getting ready to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, tomorrow. Um, I don't mean us as a church, I just mean us as a culture, um, with the holiday. And, um, you know, it had me thinking um, about as we celebrate a holiday um, in, in honor of him, um, one of the things that makes me think about, um, you know, we're celebrating all the positive change that he was able to bring. Uh, we're celebrating you know, him as uh, his role as a spokesperson for civil rights and, and a catalyst for change. A lot of changes that, you know, we take for granted if we weren't um, there during the fight for that. Um, but another thing that we celebrate that we're reminded of is just the capability, the, the, the capacity of one life to bring about change. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it's, it's amazing to me like what one life dedicated to a purpose can, can do. And um, when we uh, come to this passage today with Jesus, um, obviously another life um, that brought about great change that we're still talking about here 2,000 years later, um, we meet Jesus as he, it's the first scene as we're going through the gospel of Luke. It's the first scene where he's an adult. He's all grown up up until now. He's either been about to be born or he's been a baby or he's been a 12-year-old. But now he's about 30 years old and it's the first time we see him. He hasn't started his ministry at all because there's some things that need to happen first before he begins his ministry here on earth. And that's what I want to look at today. What, what needs to happen before Jesus can do what he came here to do? What needs to happen before Jesus can accomplish what God sent him here to accomplish and what his mission is to accomplish? And, and by looking at that today, I also want to look at that question for us. What needs to happen in our lives before we can live the way that God has called us to live? How many know that God has called us to live in a certain way? God has called us to be not only to be blessed as the people of God and as a child of God, but to be a blessing to other people. 
that the way God wants to bless the world, if you're here and, and you're a Christian today, God wants to bless the world through you. There are people in your life that only you uh, can reach, that only you can encourage, that only you can share the gospel with, that only you can bless and minister to. And so my question today is, as we look at Jesus on the precipice of his ministry before he steps out into uh, approximately three years of, of public ministry where he accomplished so much, I want us to look at what he did and let that inform what we do as we're thinking about our lives today. Is that all right? Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Ooh, it's all right from over there. That's good. Hallelujah. All right. Excuse me, I need some coffee. And actually, I want to pray too. Coffee and prayer. Great ways to start a lot of things. Um, you guys would just bow your heads with me and pray. Um, Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here together and to worship you. Lord, thank you that we have that uh, freedom and right to worship you together here in public. And uh, I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted and that we would be unified in spirit and heart with our brothers and sisters around the world who don't get to do that and who instead are huddled in secret but still worshiping and praising your name. God, I thank you that we have your word, that we have our own copies of it, that we can read it on our smartphones, that we can bring it on paper, and uh, we can read all the way through it. And Lord, may we never take for granted that we have your word. When there are brothers and sisters around the world who do not have it and who do not yet have it in their language, and yet we have it. And God, I just pray that your word would speak to us today, Lord. I pray that um, you would use me as one who speaks your truth through a consecrated person, Lord, that it's not about my words, but it's about your word. It's not about my work, but it's about the work of the Holy Spirit here today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. There's two main things I want to look at that Jesus, that happened to Jesus, that he received before he began his ministry that we see. Um, the first one is anointing, and the second one is affirmation. Jesus received anointing. Everyone say anointing. anointing. Anoint All right. I'm going to need you to say that a little bit louder. All right. Everyone say anointing. anointing. All right. And don't worry. We're not getting too Pentecostal in here. It's okay. I know anointing sounds like it's on the title of like a prosperity gospel book, uh, teacher's book, you know, how to get the anointing. And uh, I left, I left my, my preacher voice at home. But we are going to talk about anointing because that's what we see happening here and also the affirmation that Jesus receives. So in Luke's account, Jesus gets baptized. You ever thought about that, how interesting that is? That, and uh, Vince talked a little bit about it last week, that John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance, telling people to turn from their sin. He came as the prophet to get things ready for Jesus, for people to be ready to receive him. And people are repenting of their sins and being baptized. And then Jesus comes and he's baptized. But the issue with that is Jesus didn't sin. So why is he getting baptized um, for, uh, it, for this baptism of repentance? And what's interesting about Luke is, you know, we ask that, but Luke actually doesn't even focus on that. He spends one little verse on the fact that Jesus got baptized and actually, uh, when it talks, it says, uh, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And that was it. <laughs> in, in the Greek language, it's actually like a participle, just one word, Jesus was baptized. 
because, and it's not because it's not important, there's other gospels, John talks about it, um, Matthew talks about Jesus got baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And one way, Jesus got baptized to be an example for every single follower of Jesus. And every single follower is called to be baptized in obedience to him, in obedience to his word. But Luke doesn't spend time there because for Luke, and what the Spirit is saying to us through Luke, Luke wants to focus more on what happened during Jesus' baptism, not on why he got baptized. And this scene happens while Jesus got baptized, and it says while he was praying, the end of verse 21, while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Can you imagine that? And I know a lot of you are Christians and you've heard this before, but maybe just kind of slow down, slow your mind down and imagine that you're there uh, on the banks of the Jordan River and you see Jesus get baptized and then something happens in the sky that can only be described as the heavens being torn open. And you see what looks like a dove descend down and rest on Jesus. That the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And what's happening, what you're watching there, is Jesus being anointed for the ministry he's about to do. And Luke is making this point, close to the beginning of the book, that everything that follows in Jesus' life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything that happens from here on out that we see Jesus do is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we know that because the next passage says that when he left us, he left full of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and get te- he gets tempted, but he withstands the temptation of the enemy. And then when he comes down from the mountain, out of the wilderness where he was tempted, it says he came down in the power of the Spirit. And then he goes and he preaches his first sermon, and he gets up and he reads the passage that says from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your ears. Luke is trying, like, we, if you miss this, you're missing the whole point. Everything that Jesus does in his ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of times we think of Jesus, if we're not careful in this kind of one-dimensional flat figure, we just think of God with a face on, right? But the Bible says that he was fully man and fully God. And so the things that he goes through, he as a man depends on the Spirit of God. That's why the Bible talks about all the times he went to lonely places to pray. He went to solitary places to pray, to be rejuvenated, to spend time with the Father. So everything that follows in this book, Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. What's he empowered to do? Well, we said some of it he's empowered by, when the Holy Spirit's on him, he's empowered to resist Satan and the temptations that the devil brings his way, that he lived even though he was tempted in every way like we are, Hebrews says he was without sin. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to recall Scripture and to apply Scripture to the different situations that came up in his life. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word boldly, even though it got him rejected. People weren't clapping and saying, yeah, well, some were. But there's sometimes where he spoke and it wasn't like, yeah, it was like, boo, let's take him out to the hill and kill him. 
going to see that in Luke 4 when we preach on that in a few weeks. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to withstand that hostility when people were angry at him, where people were rejecting him, where people were mocking him. And I'm not just talking about on the cross. I'm talking about in his everyday ministry when he would share a word or when he would heal someone and they would say, well, you healed them because you're demon possessed. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to withstand that kind of hostility. I think probably better than I'm able to withstand hostility like that. And, and many, anyone going to be honest uh, about me or about you? <laughs> um, Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to minister to the people who were oppressed, to heal people who were sick and mourning. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus the power to live exactly how God was calling him. And so we talk about this scene being the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, and I said earlier, maybe that sounds funny. Maybe you're from a church context where you don't talk about that a lot. Maybe, um, maybe you're from a church context where you talked about that a whole lot. Um, you talked about anointing. Um, but in the Bible, it usually means this. Um, usually, especially in the Old Testament, you would anoint someone um, someone or something with oil to be set apart for God's service. So if you look through the Old Testament, people were anointed. Utensils that were used in the tabernacle or the temple, they would anoint the altar. They would anoint the wash basin. They would anoint the prophet, the priest, the kings. They would be anointed. And basically, it was a symbol of saying, you are set apart to do the thing that God has called you to do now. That's what it means. But in addition to that, the Hebrew people were also looking forward to a day because God had promised to the prophets, there is going to come somebody from the line of King David, and he is going to be especially anointed to bring the kingdom of God. And you know what they called that person? The Messiah. And you know what the word Messiah means in Hebrew? Anointed one. Do you know what the word Christos means, where we, we say Christ. We say Jesus Christ like it's a name. Christos means anointed one. It's the Greek word for the same thing. Jesus comes to be the Messiah, and this is where we see him get anointed by the Holy Spirit. And here's why I'm making such a big deal about this. Here's why this is significant. Before Jesus gives a message, before he performs a miracle, before he does any ministry, before the action, you know, I've, maybe you're going through with us in this series and you're like, where's the action? When do we get to, when does he feed the 5,000? Can't we get there? Can't we just zoom ahead? We're going to get there. <laughs> but before any of that, what does Jesus receive? Anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit on his life precedes the action that God has called him to do. Precedes it and empowers it. You guys following? And here's why it's so important for us. We want to jump ahead. Is it just me? We want to jump ahead to the action without always waiting on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have a tendency to try to follow Jesus, to try to live a life of impact. Don't you want to live a life of impact? Don't you want to make your life count? Don't you want, if you have kids, don't you want to make an investment into their lives that blesses them for generations? And hasn't God called you to do that? 
We have a desire to live a life of impact and to follow Jesus into that kind of action without always depending on the Holy Spirit and waiting and being patient and seeking the anointing of God before we get into the action of what God has called us to do. Come on, somebody. Anyone? Is this hitting? Yeah. Just me? Huh? No, you? Okay, okay, good, good. So often we can be guilty of doing things in our own strength. Going through life as a follower of Jesus Christ with minimal prayer, with minimal posture of depending on the Holy Spirit. We, are, we feel conformed and pressed by our culture and by our own desires. We want to be productive, but God has called us to be fruitful. And fruit, bearing fruit, takes time. We make plans, and then we get started, and then we say, God, would you bless us as we step into this new season? We run through the week, whether it's work or school or kids, and we let our schedules dictate our lives, and maybe if we have time, we'll spend a few of our extra minutes in prayer just before the thing that we're worried about. I know I'm stepping on, I'm stepping on my own toes, all right? Come on. It's okay. I'm not preaching down to you. Here's the thing. We're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. Um, Luke, Luke Acts is a, is a, is a two-part book, basically. Luke and the book of Acts. In the beginning of Acts, you see the apostles, they're doing a version of the same thing. Jesus is telling them, the resurrected Jesus is telling them, uh, he's, he's already told them, you're going to go in all the world. You're going to make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to obey. I'll be with you always wherever you go. And they're ready to go do it. But then he says this. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. That's what today's scene is. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. In verse 8, and then he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. For those of you who are following Jesus, who have been touched by his love and his grace, can I suggest to you, I wonder how much of our stress and our burnout and our fatigue and our disillusionment is related to this. Trying to live a life of impact without waiting for the anointing from the Holy Spirit. Can I suggest that might even be the quickest route to burnout for you? The quickest route to disappointment trying to follow Jesus without the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of the Father. We try to be a better worker. We try to be a better husband or wife, a better mother or father, a better student, to be a better follower of Jesus, walking in more obedience to God and how God has called you to live. But in order to, make, to truly make an impact in those areas, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So how do we get the anointing of the Holy Spirit? That's a good question, because I think 
and a lot of and a lot of times that's the answer to that question is where things get weird. <laughs> right? And people start trying to answer that question, not looking to hear, but just kind of looking to what seems right or what feels right or How do we receive that anointing? What does it mean to seek out that anointing of the Holy Spirit on our lives? And let me just say briefly that the Bible does teach that every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit in their life. In fact, it says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. Romans 8. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord, everyone who turns from sin and believes in Jesus and what he's done for you, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. And in this passage today, we're not given a formula, we're not given a recipe. You know, you just a little bit of dash of this, you know, make sure you clap 13 times, turn around. Got to graduate in worship, you got to go from like, carry the TV, the bigger TV, to like touchdown, right? And then you get anointed. All right, I'm being facetious. This is weird. Way off my notes. That's not in my notes. Um, But we're not given a recipe. We're not given a formula. We're not given a map. But what we are given is a direction and a posture. And here's what you look at. What was Jesus doing? He was praying. You know, it's funny that the word that's used for him getting baptized is a past tense, just it happened. But the word that is used for him praying is a continuous thing. Luke is indicating to us, Jesus was a man of prayer. There is a priority to prayer. If you want the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life, you're not going to get it apart from prayer. You're not going to get it apart from Prayer precedes the anointing in your life. The anointing to do God's will, to live in the way that he's called you to live, to walk in those next steps of faith that he's called you to. Prayer has got to be a priority. Another thing is submission to God's word. We talked about Jesus. Jesus didn't need to get baptized for his sins. He didn't have any sin. But Matthew 3 says, I'm doing this in order to fulfill all righteousness. I'm doing this to affirm the ministry of John. I'm doing this in solidarity in solidarity with other people. In doing that, he's exemplifying submitting to God's word and the ministry of God's word. And another thing he's exemplifying is dependence on the spirit. We said in Acts 1, he gave them this mission, but then he said, hurry up and wait in Jerusalem. Wait until you receive the gift that my father promised, and then you'll have power to be my witnesses. Prayer. Every great revival in the history of the church, every great movement of God was preceded by prayer on the part of God's people. Intense, powerful Seasons of prayer and desperate longing for God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and in movements of the spirit, the first thing that happens, which eventually leads to a great revival, is that one person or a group of people suddenly begin to feel this burden, and they feel the burden so much that they're led to do something about it. 
prayer. Would you consider yourself, as you're listening today, a woman of prayer? Would you consider yourself a man of prayer? What role does prayer, talking with God, bringing your worries and concerns and your hopes and dreams and your doubts and fears and your faith to God, what role does it play in your life? Is it just salt shakered on under your life? Or is it the driving force that helps you get up in the morning? Is it the driving force that helps you have that conversation that you don't want to have, but you know God's calling you to have it? What would it look like if, if you, if we were walking in that anointing of the Holy Spirit? I think it would look a lot like it looked for Jesus. We would find that the Spirit is increasingly giving us power to resist temptation. How many know we face temptation? Two of you do. Three. One, two, three. Well, for us three, there's good news. The Spirit. Come on, guys. One more, all right, all right, we got one more. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, we, we're not called to resist temptation in our own willpower. Yeah, if you've got willpower, use all that. But the only way you're going to face up against the, the schemes of your spiritual enemy is through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's through prayer, it's through relying on God. God, I'm weak, but you are strong. And you said, your spirit lives in me. So help me resist. Help me turn away. Having that anointing means God's spirit is going to give you the ability to apply his scripture in your life. And maybe recall scripture in a conversation with a friend or a brother or sister who's sharing something with you. And you say, well, you know what? I don't know what to say, but the Bible says this in this verse. Gives you the ability to proclaim God's word in those times where you know you want to and you feel like you should, but you're afraid and you don't know. And yet the Holy Spirit gives you the boldness to proclaim the word of God, to withstand hostility. How many? <laughs> I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> How many need that? I think we all need that. I don't want to say it, but election year is coming up. We all need the ability to withstand hostility. And it's not just going to come in our own strength and our woosa. Okay, I'm going to ignore, I'm, I'm going to ignore that family member's post. Ah, mm. It's going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Or to withstand the increasing hostility that we're facing from our culture if we say, no, we're going to faithfully follow Jesus and we're going to faithfully preach this word. It's only going to be by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The way you're going to minister to the other people in your life that your heart breaks for but you don't know what to do the way you're going to minister to those people is through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The way that God might want to use you to bring healing into someone's life is going to be through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As good as you are, it's not going to come through you. 
It's going to come through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, some time ago, I read about a, a, a man named William Seymour, who was um, a preacher. He was an African-American preacher and really the, the father of the Pentecostal movement, the Azusa revival that happened in Los Angeles. He was kind of the leader of that all during uh, time. And I, I read a little bit about his life and the challenges he faced and, and the Bible college he went to. They, it was all white and they didn't allow black people, but they let him sit outside the building with the window open so he could learn about God's word. And yet he did it. And I read some of the testimonies of people that went to that I don't know what's going on. <laughs> People that went to that revival in Azusa. <laughs> Someone said it's the anointing. <laughs> <laughs> People went to that revival. And um, I, think, I think she was a, a reporter, a journalist. She went to see what all this was about. And um, went to the church meeting. And I don't have the quote, but I'll just paraphrase it. <laughs> But she said she sat through the service, and she was kind of unaffected. She sat through the singing, and there was prayer. And, and then all of a sudden, William Seymour got up, and he went up to preach, and he just said, hallelujah. And she said, it rang my soul like a bell. And she just talked about her impression of the anointing on this man's life, a, a life that was fully dedicated to God. It's not always going to be like that. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all of us need to stand up somewhere and say, hallelujah, <laughs> and expect someone to just crumple in tears. <laughs> but there is something powerful about a person who is seeking out the anointing of the Holy Spirit in their life. Someone who is saying, God, help me grow in patience to start with prayer, not my plans or my action or my asking you to bless what I already started. God, give me the patience to start with prayer. God, give me the patience to seek out your anointing, your Holy Spirit in my life. Give me wisdom as I'm making decisions, Lord. Give me the wisdom to ask for your wisdom as I'm making decisions, Lord. Amen? So Jesus Two things in this, in, this, in this text. He receives the anointing from the Holy Spirit. Anointing by the Holy Spirit. He's anointed for ministry. But then the other thing, he receives affirmation before his ministry. It's not just that the Spirit rested on Jesus. We see this dove, but we also hear a voice from heaven. And the words that Jesus heard. And I'm not going to get into it now, but it's this is a beautiful passage if you want to learn more about uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Because you see in this passage, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then working um, together as one. But moving from the anointing to the affirmation, verse 22b, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. How many know that the affirmation of your parents 
means so much. That, and maybe you're here today and you never felt that, and I've, you probably know even more in the absence of it how much it means. But if you've ever felt that, it is a, it is a gift and a grace of God. I see Jesus experiencing a glimpse of this. I know I've had it in my times in, in my life. I'm so thankful for my parents. So thankful. The older I get, so thankful for my parents that they love the Lord and, and pointed me in the direction to love the Lord as well. And I remember when I was um, 2007, where I was in a time in my life where God called me to ministry, and I had been planning on um, doing the family business, optometry school, was applying for it, was about to interview for it, and long story short, God was like, no, you need to do ministry, and I don't know if you guys know, there's a, there's a large uh, gap in the expected income between those two. <laughs> And, um, and I, was told, I told the youth group a, a week or so ago, at that time in my life, when I was thinking about, oh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? I was like, I would just look at an occupation, and I would look at the average salary nationwide, and then be like, no, no, no. <laughs> and then uh, someone joked, and then you ended up in ministry. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, at that time, I, was, I remember I was just thinking, what are my parents going to say? I don't, I mean, we had this plan. I'm going to go into the business. I'm going to do this. And not that they had ever forced me or said, you have to or anything. I was just planning to do it. And just felt like a lot of angst. And I went home for the weekend or something, and we were talking. And, and I just remember how much it meant to hear instead words of affirmation. And, we were t- and at the time, I was talking about moving out here to California to be a youth pastor. And I think my dad was like, well, you know what? You should, you should look into substitute teaching because you already have the degree and you could get the credentials really easy and that would help you. And I just remember how different it was, what I was expecting to feel and the weight I was want, what thought was coming <laughs> and the fear. And instead to feel like, no, like, son, like we kind of expected that God was going to do this in your life and we were waiting on you to understand it. <laughs> and... Huge, huge difference there. Just a little snippet on the power of your parents' affirmation over you, father's affirmation over you. And I think when we read this passage, we our distance from it kind of affects us because we think of Jesus as the Son of God, right? You think Jesus, a lot of people think Son of God. And this is, the, this is one of the passages where it's definitive, where, where the Bible is making it clear, where a voice comes from heaven. God the Father says, you are my son, <laughs> right? And then if that's not clear enough, there's a genealogy right after with 77 names that we kind of skip most of. But it's interesting that it begins with, it says Jesus was about 30 when he started ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, <laughs> That's how it starts the genealogy. It's highlighting again. Yeah, Joseph is his earthly dad, but God is his father. And if that's not enough, it goes through the whole list of names, and then it gets down to the the names that you start to recognize again from the beginning of the book. You know, it says the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then it ends with this, the son of God. He's making it clear 
that Jesus is the Son of God, and that was a bold claim. We're used to it, but this was like, whoa. Like maybe they might refer to the Messiah as the Son of God, but Jesus is like, no, Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he's the Son of God. No other Jewish genealogy in existence names God in its list of names. Luke is making a point. Jesus is the Son of God. And what that means, too, is that, yes, he came through the line of David and he came through the line of Abraham, but he goes all the way down to Son of Adam, Son of God, to show us this, that what Jesus came to do, he's not just Israel's Savior. He's not just Israel's Messiah. He's the Savior of the whole world. Sorry, we went into a little bit theology trail there. (laughs) But back to this, the words that Jesus hears, the affirmation that he hears, and here's what he's really hearing. He's hearing his identity. He's hearing his identity as the beloved son of God. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And here's why it's so important. It's not that Jesus... I don't think this was new information at Jesus. I think this was confirmation and confirmation for other people to hear. We heard a sermon or two ago about Jesus as a 12-year-old, and he already said, no, I'm in the temple because i got to be about my father's business. So he knew who his father was. But he's hearing this at the beginning of his ministry as an adult. Why? Because from this point forward, that identity that he is the Son of God is going to be repeatedly tested, challenged, mocked, questioned, puzzled over. The very next scene where Satan tempts him, he starts his temptation with this. If you are the son of God. Satan tries to throw him off and say, well, if that's true, then prove it. His identity constantly comes under attack. People trying to, people trying to rename him and, and frame him in a different light. He's called a glutton. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed in John chapter 8. But if he's the son of God, if that's his identity, and hearing that affirmation now, If it's true, then no one else can tell him who he really is or who he should be or how he ought to act because he knows who he is. He's secure. Even when they taunt him, even when they mock him, even when they don't fight fair in public argument and they say, well, at least we know who our father is, calling him an illegitimate child of Mary, making fun of the fact of the rumors about the virgin birth, and yet he knows who he is because he's heard and received his identity from God. No one else can tell him who he is or who he should be or how he ought to act. And secondly, he didn't do anything in this scene. He didn't do anything to earn this. This identity, it's received. It's received and affirmed, but not earned. I... Y'all didn't hear me. (laughs) It's received and affirmed, but not earned. Before he preached a message, before he performed a miracle, before he wowed the crowds, 
Just like the anointing of the Holy Spirit precedes the action of his ministry, this affirmation of his identity precedes his mission, precedes what God has called him to do. And we need to hear this today, church. We need to hear this today, church. People who aren't yet part of the church need to hear this today, too, because identity is huge in our culture. Identity is huge. And our culture tells you, you must know who you are. You got to know who you are, and then you have to ruthlessly advocate for the expression of your own identity. It's so big to us that politicians pander to us based on our identity. They put us into groups based on how we identify. And then tell us what they think we want to hear if we identify in that way. The world celebrates knowing yourself, being true to yourself, living your truth. And the cardinal sin is if you fail to be true to yourself. But, and here's the thing. A lot of that's good, but there are problems with the way we understand identity. Because we think we, ha- we have to choose and create our own identity instead of something that we discover and receive. Ah, it's all right. Lunch is going to come. It's okay. We're all here. All right. We, we think that we have, to, we have to choose who we are and then create it and make it come into being. And let me hear you. The world needs to know that is slavery. That will fail you every single time. If your identity is so small that you could create it, it will crumble by the end of your life. I don't know when, but it will crumble. When the waves come and you have built your house on the sand, it will crash down. But secondly, because we think we have to choose it and create it, we think that identity comes as a result of what we do. Because we think our identity is up to us to make, then it behooves us to make it. with what we do, and we're known by what we do or what we have or what others think of us. You guys know, I mean, you guys know what we talk about all the time. It's the second question in our culture, right? First is your name. Second is, what do you do? Yeah. And uh, I get that all, I mean, all of us get that all the time. Um, I've noticed my reaction to that has changed in the last few years since I went full-time in the ministry, because before that, I was bivocational, and um, but now it's like I don't have that other because you know sometimes people don't want to hear you're a pastor. Um, I mean maybe Christians do and that's cool, but non Christians like you get all sorts of reactions like everything from like you know heal me or like get away from me or like all this stuff or what what's the toughest theological question I can think of? Let me just dump it on you and answer it right. And so used to, I could say, well, yo, I work for a nonprofit, or oh, I do well, all these other things that I did <laughs> in addition to pastoring. And now lately, you know, I'm a student, but I say, oh, I'm a pastor. And it's fun to watch the different reactions. I was getting a haircut the other day, and the guy asked, hey, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a church. And then he just didn't say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, okay, that's a new one. <laughs> what I'm getting at is this. We, and it's a funny question for a lot of us, not just me. I don't want to, it's not about me up here. But what I'm trying to get is we have a tendency to try to earn our identity through our actions, 
through what we do, through the kind of work that we output. We have a tendency to try to earn the identity that we want through our achievements, through our ability to impress others and, and control and manipulate our reputation and what they think of us. We have a desire to, to prove ourselves, to earn it. It's the, the first lie that, that ever happened. The serpent in the garden. Vince talked about it a few weeks ago. Did God really say you can't uh, touch or eat the fruit of that garden? And they say, you know, then he comes back and says this. No, no, you won't surely die. God knows that if you do that, you'll become. Take that down to if you do, you'll become. Where the serpent tells humans who are made in the image of God that if you do this one more thing, you'll become like God. No, we're made in the image of God. Your identity comes before anything that you do. And Jesus proves it to us in this. When, when the father tells him, you are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Well, what are you pleased with? He hasn't done a message. He hasn't gone out and done the ministry. He hasn't done anything you call them to do yet. What are you pleased with? You are my son whom I love and you I'm well pleased. Your identity is not something you can earn. Your identity is not something that you have to prove to other people. Your identity is something you receive from your father in heaven. Without receiving our identity in Christ. And I'm not saying your other identities melt away. I've said this before. God is not colorblind. He made the colors. They give him glory. Our other identities, whether social status or ethnicity or nationality or what language you speak or all that, they don't go away, but it's that our identity in Christ becomes primary. And if that doesn't happen, then we're still stuck in the old slavery of our identity is what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us. The problem with that, Henry Nouwen says, I think I have the quote here. It says, as long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. I would say we'll remain filled up with those things instead of love. We'll remain filled up with comparing ourselves amongst ourselves and the judgments of what other people said about us 20 years ago that doesn't even make sense that we should even still remember it and yet it still guides our daily decisions. We will live filled up with everything other than you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And the good news today, there is good news, that we do have a new identity. That it's not just Jesus we're looking at who sees us, but that the gospel, that this word goes on to proclaim to us that we do. That when we who are in Christ, if, if, if we believe in him and what he came to do for us, we receive a new identity. It's not created, it's not earned, it's received. That we can hear those words of affirmation from our Heavenly Father. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. It's not by works. Ephesians 2, we can't boast. And it's an identity that's way, 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 way better than you could create with your works. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, I don't have to work. No, it's better than what you could work for. 
John 1.12 says it this way, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 1 John 3.1 says this, one of my favorite verses, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Exclamation point. (laughs) The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Romans 8, 14, which we realized after we named the group 814 a few years ago, but it fit really well. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering so that we may also share in his glory. I want to ask you today, when's the last time you really listened to the affirmation from your heavenly father. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Before you do anything for me, you are mine. Don't try to earn it with what you do. Rather, let what you do reflect who you are. You are mine. You are loved. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard that voice. You've never heard that affirmation from your heavenly father. And can I tell you today, you can hear it today. You can hear it today. That verse I just read says that Jesus came to earth and the people who should have received him didn't receive him. But as many as do, those are the ones who become the children of God. You can hear that voice over your life. And all it has to do is receiving Jesus. That he came to save. It's nothing that you do. It's just believing that he came to save you from sin. And he came to save you from your own identity. He came to save you from. You can receive that today when you say, God, I'm tired of living for myself in my own ways. I want to live for you. And I want to believe in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I believe he died for me on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day. You can hear that voice of affirmation from your father. And when you've heard it, no one can take it away from you. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you haven't felt it in a while. You haven't heard it in a while, but no one can take it away from you. All you got to do to hear that voice is be still, be still and talk to God. God, I need to hear your voice. I need to hear who I am from you because you're the only one who can tell me who I am. God, I'm tired of the weight of slavery of this world that says I have to make up who I am and then prove it to everyone by how I live. God, I need to hear your voice that tells me who I am and tells me that you love me. I am who you say I am. No one can take it away from you. Like Jesus proves in the next scene, not even the devil himself can take it away from you. You... No one can take it away from you, but also you can't earn it. Before the ministry that you do, before anything that you do for God, 
before anything that you do for other people, before any way that you're trying to be a better person, before any of that, whether you feel useful or useless, and you'll probably feel both, before any of that, you cannot earn this. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. You're no longer bound to what you do, what you have, or what other people think about you. You are a child of God. 11 years ago, what time is it? Okay. Doing pretty good. Got a few more minutes. 11 years ago, I was um, going on my first missions trip, and it was a three-month trip. It was a long trip. And I went to this, uh, the, 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 the camp where they kind of get you ready for that, where you're praying to get ready for this missions trip. And I had never done anything like this, and I was just wanting to dedicate my life and my heart to God. And I remember in that time, there was a, there was a prayer time or something, and I was just feeling, I was just feeling, uh, you know, the, the word for uh, Satan in the Bible is the accuser. I was just feeling all the sin Everything that I had ever done, I was feeling all that in my life, just shame in my heart and in my mind and just thinking, you can't do this. Why are you going to go out and try to tell other people about Jesus, try to serve other people? Why would you do that, Kenny, when this, this, and this, and this, and this? And I remember I went and talked to the, one of the leaders. His name was Don Rock, which I think is like the coolest name. <laughs> so strong name, right? Don Rock. And uh, Don, if you're watching, um, <laughs> no, but he, he prayed with me. He, he kind of pulled me aside, and, and, and I just remember he said, Kenny, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his son. He doesn't see you and all your mess-ups and how horrible you are. He sees the righteousness of his son. He looks at you with pleasure. He looks at you and with love. <laughs> He sees you with the holiness of Jesus, with the righteousness of Jesus. And man, I just, whew. maybe I'd heard that all my life. I don't know, but that's when the Holy Spirit made it click in my heart. And it was like, and the tears. <laughs> when you hear that affirmation from God, no one can take it away from you. And it changes everything. One last thing as I'm closing in these minutes was the affirmation that Jesus heard was not only his identity, but it also spoke of his direction that he was headed. In that phrase, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. There's three verses in the Old Testament, key verses that each of those have echoes of and that they point to. The first one is Psalm 2-7 that's talking about the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a king from David's line and it says the words, you are my son. And then uh, the other one is Isaiah 42-1 and it's talking about, the prophet's talking about there's going to come one who's called the servant and he's, going to ser- he's the one that the Holy Spirit's going to rest on and he's the one that's going to save his people, the suffering servant. And then there's another one from Genesis 22 verse 2. And it's from that story that is so hard to understand and and speaks to our hearts so much, but it's when 
Abraham had waited for years and years for the promise, and then God gave him the promised son. And then when his promised son was a teenager, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. You see how much it slowed down? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He tells him to go sacrifice. If you know the story, you know that Abraham went with faith, and when Isaac asked him, where's the sacrifice? He said, the Lord himself will provide. And he did not, the Lord did provide. He did not sacrifice Isaac. He was faithful and willing to give up the one who was promised, the one whom he loved more than anything else. And yet, at the last minute, God provided a lamb and said, now I know. And when Jesus hears this message, he doesn't just hear the affirmation about who he is. He hears the affirmation about what his mission is, that he's the king, that he's the servant, and that he's the son who will be sacrificed for us. That what he did on the cross was him laying down his life because the weight of my sin was that much. The weight of our sin to to try to live without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The weight of our sin to try to make our own identity and go our own way apart from God and who he says we are. The weight of that sin was laid on him and yet he willingly went and became the sacrifice once for all so that we could be forgiven and free. And that is why you can hear the voice of your heavenly father saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and you I am well pleased. That is why when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures or your mess ups or everything that's gone wrong in your life and how weak you are and frail. He sees his son. Because Jesus went up to that hill and no one else came through for him. He was the sacrifice for you and for me and for every single one who will believe and receive what he did for them. And when we receive that, only when we receive that, that's when we're going to live the way that God has called us to live. Amen? Let's pray, church. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love and your power. God, I am a weak and frail vessel but you are good. Holy Spirit, we believe, I believe that you've been orchestrating this moment for the purposes that you have in people's lives. God, I don't claim to know what those are, but I do know that if we open ourselves up to what you're saying and how you're ministering, you will minister in this place. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do just that. God, I pray that faith would rise I pray that we'd bring our doubts and our fears and our brokenness to you and we'd leave with joy and rejoicing. Not because everything's magically better, but because you are good. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We invite you into these next moments in the name of Jesus. Amen.